Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest Mark Leverage Magic podcast. Great to have you along. This one is uh, the sort of Christmas and New Year edition, really, isn't it? Because it spans December 22 into January 23. And I suppose it's at this sort of time of year that you start to reflect on things that have happened in the last 12 months. And for me, the major thing has been my retirement from Magic Scene magazine. At the end of October, I put together the last edition that I was going to be dealing with, which was issue 107, the November one. And with that, I then have gracefully retired into the sunset, as far as the magazine is concerned, leaving it in the capable hands of fellow founder Phil Shaw. It's amazing to think that it's been 18 years virtually since we first started it. Graham Hay and Phil Shaw had the original idea for Magic Scene and approached me to be editor and co-owner. And I haven't regretted it for one minute. It's been a wonderful experience. I I love writing anyway. And to, to have the excuse to have a magazine in which to put down my thoughts and to share information has been absolutely amazing. And I'm very grateful to the two of them for giving me that opportunity for so long. And to think that we did 107 issues, so if I'd done one more issue, we would have completed 18 years. It's a long time to be doing anything, quite frankly. And it's certainly with a, even though the magazine is not monthly, but bi-monthly, so every two months, it's amazing how the treadmill of deadlines associated with various aspects of the magazine keep on coming round ever faster. And I'd got to the point where I thought, you know, I would actually quite like to get off this treadmill. And so that was why that I decided that it was time to hang up my editorial pencil and let others carry on the magazine. I think it's also a good thing because hopefully there are going to be different voices, in inverted commas, in the magazine too, because obviously as the editor I have had a huge influence on the tone and the content. And these are just my opinions. These are just my thoughts and my way of doing things. So I think it's going to be really interesting for me now looking in from the outside to be able to see what others want to say and how it the magazine develops over the coming months and years. It has, I say, been a fantastic experience and I, and I don't regret any of it. And I think it's one of those things that when you look back on it and the circumstances under which I ended up being the editor, it's not something that I sought or I ever thought possible. Uh, I hadn't thought about it at all. Being an editor of a magic magazine, why would I? I had my own business. So when this opportunity came in 2005 to start this magazine, it was a, it was a, a leap of faith in a way. It was jumping into something that I knew literally nothing about. And of course, because it was a brand new venture, loads of people said, oh, it won't last. Magic magazines never last. And here we are 18 years later and it has lasted. And I'm proud to think of the content that we've managed to provide over the last 18 years, but also the way that Magic Scene has become established in the magic world and is now recognized, I think, in all over the place and has subscribers all over the world, which is a fantastic thing. When you consider the difficulties in producing anything printed these days, but magazines in particular, the fact that we've been through COVID as well, and we still managed to survive that, all these things have led me to believe that it's a project that I'm proud of 
and that will continue further into the into the future. Mark Levish Magic is, I would hasten to add, continuing. I'm not retiring from magic completely, just from magic scene. It, the extra time that I'm getting from not dealing with the magazine, of course, I'm going to be using for all sorts of things um, in my life. But also it'll give me more time to concentrate on eClub Pro uh, and on Mark Levish Magic in general. And I'm looking forward to not being under quite so much pressure when I'm dealing with that side of my business as well. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody realised that I'm not retiring completely and that uh, Mark Levish Magic will be continuing. Otherwise, people keep saying, oh, I understand you've retired. No, no, I haven't retired. I've retired from the magazine, but not from the separate Mark Leverage Magic business. So hopefully this will help to put the record straight. Earlier in the summer this year, the 28th World Championship of Magic, known to you as I as FISM, took place in Quebec, in Canada. And as usual, it produced some jaw-dropping magic. Now, I didn't actually go to this event. I haven't been to a FISM for a little while. In the sort of late 80s and in through the 90s, uh, I went to several FISM events as a dealer, which is, by the way, very hard work because it's a long week and a lot of traveling usually is involved. But I went to a couple of events that took place at different times in Holland, went to Lausanne in Switzerland, Dresden in Germany, and, and they are amazing. And you get to see some of the best people strut their stuff. But as I say, I didn't go this time. So the other day I thought it'd be interesting just to go on YouTube and see if I could watch some of the award-winning acts. And I duly did. I uh, particularly enjoyed Mark Obie's uh, act. where He got first place in cards. And what was interesting about him was his style was very much based on a personality as a slightly klutzy magician who then went on to do amazing things and it's interesting because over the years winners have sometimes been like that they they're not they don't present the most technically amazing looking magic but they have such a character and such a clever way of putting across what they do actually put into their act that they scoop the prize for the novelty of the way they've done it. And I think he's a case in point. There are sort of, uh, for me anyway, as I was watching, he looked, he reminded me a little bit of Danny Dortis in his sort of slightly scattergun approach to his card match, dropping things and mixing them up in a very random way and then producing out of this apparent chaos some amazing uh, coincidences and magic effects. Anyway, I really enjoyed his act. You compare that to the person called Mr. Triton, who got third in the close-up, and, and his was completely different and was much more, in my view, a, a sort of traditional FISM-winning act, in, in that he based the whole thing as if it was in a restaurant, and everything was themed, almost like a story, as things to do with having a meal in a restaurant appeared and disappeared. It was it was absolutely brilliant. It was really, really well put together, performed beautifully, so original, so clever, great methodology, really interesting to watch and just very different. And you can see why acts like that have done so well. And this is the thing about FISM, isn't it? That it is basically, although there are lots of lectures and shows and things like that, Basically, it is a vehicle, of course, for close-up competition and a stage competition. Uh, 
And in the old days, when I was, was still attending, it was one of those things where almost anybody within reason could be sponsored to enter. These days, of course, they have um, international heats which kind of weed out the weaker acts, weaker being a relative term, because all the acts usually that think they're good enough to go into FISM usually pretty much are. But they manage to weed out those that are not quite up to the standard. So that in theory, anyway, the standard of the competition act should be very, very high and consistently high. And I have to say that when you watch, for instance, some of the manipulation acts, I was, again, I was watching one on YouTube from this year's event, and as he, he was doing the most incredible things, and I thought about a crikey, this actually looks like real magic. It's, if you could do real magic, what this guy is doing in this manipulative act is probably what it would look like. But the thing about all these acts, or pretty much all of them anyway, is that the only place where you can use them is usually under very, very controlled conditions. They are not, most of them, in any way commercial acts, particularly the close-up. The close-up with special tables and, and complicated setups and, 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 and so on. You, you cannot, you know, very controlled angles. You, these are not commercial conditions. I don't think this matters because that's not what it's judging. But... Sometimes the manipulation acts, they get a bit of work. Sometimes they get it on cruise ships, I suppose. Or, of course, they often get a lot of work at magic conventions entertaining magicians because their acts are so outstanding. But I just think it's interesting that the World Championship of Magic crowns a lot of people who are incredibly worthy, have got fantastic acts with great originality and creativity. But most of them, if you sent them down to, the, to a, a local club, and I don't mean a magic club here, I mean like a social club or some other thing, wouldn't actually be able to do their act because the condition just wouldn't be right. <laughs> Funny thing that, isn't it? I did my first magic lecture way back in 1978. And I've always loved lecturing, as those of you who listen to me regularly will know, I've said this before, uh, the, the process of doing a lecture I've always really, really enjoyed. Giving something back, being able to explain the thought processes behind my ideas, I get a lot of fun out of that. And I think people enjoy the sort of the things that I've had to show them over the years. And of course, I've been very lucky because lecturing has taken me literally all over the world. I've lectured at pretty much every magic club in the UK over the years, but I've also done uh, either conventions or club lectures in several countries in Europe. I've been to Singapore, Australia, many times to America. So it's taken me everywhere. And I think when you, you're in this sort of circuit of lecturing, you get to know where all the major magic centers are and what the, 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 the sort of movers and shakers in the magic world, where they're based. So therefore, it was a particular surprise to me to get a contact completely out of the blue recently from the Magic Circle of Listenburg. Now, I, I got this, it came through and I thought, Listenburg, where on earth is that? Well, actually, it's on the Iberian Peninsula, just, just near Spain. It's only a small principality, really. But uh, apparently, this Magic Circle there has been going for about 40 years. In fact, when FISM was in Madrid, in Spain, they even sent one of their, they were newly formed club at the time, they sent one of their people to go into the close-up competition. So, and they really sort of went on from there. So, 
I was a bit surprised. I, I thought, I don't know anything about this place. Uh, actually, apparently, it doesn't have an airport. Although Ryanair, apparently, are, are taking flights to that area. And I, I suppose, eventually, they will, they will have to uh, either... At the moment, you go to Madrid and then you take a train. But um, they will hopefully be getting somewhere where they can land and you'll be able to go more directly. But uh, I, because I didn't know anything about it, I thought I'd investigate a little bit. And it turns out that although there are no names that you and I would identify as being world-famous magicians who come from Listenberg, they are very active. Considering what a relatively small country they are, they're very active and they, they do put on shows for the lay public. Uh, they have regular meetings. And uh, as far as I can judge, uh, I don't know this for sure, but um, the, the magic circle of Listenberg itself is, is the only major magic club. I mean, they may have other smaller collections of people who meet, but that's the, the main one that all the, a bit like the magic circle in England, you know, it's the one that everybody who's not associated with magic actually heard, has heard of. And for people, for Listenburgers, that's the one that they've heard of, the, man, the magic circle of Listenburg. So... Uh, I, I, I sort of thought to myself, well, I wonder what sort of magic they're interested in, because some what I found is going around that close up is, is mainly what I do, as you know. And so the contents of my lectures tend to be about close up. So I'm hoping that this will be acceptable. Um, but, but some countries I know have more major on perhaps stage magic. So it's something that I, I need to investigate and find out. Uh, and what I'll probably do is get in contact with the president of the of, this, of the circle just to get some information about the sort of things that, it, that the members are interested in. And I may actually put together a, a special lecture just for that uh, in order to make sure that I do things that they would be interested in. So interesting. So I first heard of Listenberg itself, actually, on Twitter. And uh, if you go onto Twitter, you might be able to find some threads there about it. Uh, in fact, you, everything that you need to know about the Magic Circle of Listenberg and about Listenberg itself is probably revealed by the fact that the date of the lecture that they would like me to do is the 1st of April 2023, which probably tells you everything you need to know about what I've been talking about for the last few minutes. Right, here's a, a little question for you. Would you say that the range of objects that we as magicians these days use for our magic has reduced, that we're using less different items than we used to. If you think about it, uh, and most new releases of things these days, the vast majority are probably in close-up, the number of different objects that these tricks are using it's very, very restricted, it seems to me. It's a lot of card stuff, of course, a lot of coin stuff, and a few other things. But generally speaking, the, the range is quite small. You get the odd trick with a bottle or something like that, but it's, it is quite small. And even, say, stage and parlour magic, those have, the number of items that they're using has changed too. Particularly, I think, possibly, because so many people these days have changed to being mentalists rather than magicians. And of course, mentalists use very few props. And so the manufacturers of, of apparatus are looking to supply the mentalists with items that they can use because there are so many of them out there. And of course, they don't use an awful lot of props in their acts. And so there's, the variety, again, has been restricted. 
Uh, what brought this to, to my mind was um, I was looking at my magic bookcase the other day and I idly picked out a book and I think it was the, the second magic book that I ever bought in the mid 60s when I was still a kid. And it was Gene Hugard's Modern Magic Manual. Now the key is in the title and the clue is in the title here, Modern Magic Manual. So the contents of this book were purporting to be the magic for the modern magician at that time. And I opened it up and the book was divided into sections where they would take an object and they would give you various um, routines and ideas using that particular object. So they had a, a chapter on pocket watches, all sorts of routines with pocket watches. Not wrist watches, you note, pocket watches, the little circular ones. They had a chapter on cigarettes, a chapter on cigars, a chapter on thimbles, billiard balls, golf balls. And as I was going through and I was turning through and I thought, actually, most of these things, nobody does magic with these anymore. Cigarettes and cigars. Eh, not really. Not politically, politically correct anymore, is it? Um, pocket watches. Well, modern people don't know what a pocket watch is. It looked very, uh, very strange. And that's what led me to think, well, what about other things that we, that we don't tend to see magic with? Some flowers. Yeah, you see some stage acts still use flowers, but it, it looks a bit odd. Candles. Well, Fantasio made an entire career out of appearing and disappearing candles. But really, candles still? Nobody uses candles, do they? Um, other things, paper money. Now, this is an interesting one because, in, of course, in more recent times, particularly in the UK, we've gone over to these the sort of plastic banknotes. And for most magic tricks that we used to use the paper money for, you can't do them anymore because the, the, the plasticky notes don't, res, don't fold or, and remain folded. You can't do the things that you, you once thought was just automatic for paper money. Now you can't do those tricks anymore. So that's led to a, a lot less money tricks. Eggs, that's another thing. Children's routines with eggs. Yeah. Have you noticed the way eggs in children's routines are often white eggs? How often do you see a white egg in the supermarket? They're all brown, aren't they? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Um, other things that we don't see magic with anymore. P items of clothing, such as a handkerchief. Borrow from a gentleman in the audience a pocket handkerchief, because all gentlemen carried pocket handkerchiefs in their top, top pocket, which was a real handkerchief, not just one that was there for decoration, but was actually a real handkerchief. Well, people don't wear those in a jackets anymore. In fact, they'd be lucky to be wearing a jacket, which makes me wonder how pickpockets manage when if most of the audience that uh, go to watch their shows aren't wearing jackets anymore. Then you have things like milk bottles. Oh, sorry, I was talking about uh, clothing, wasn't I? Hats. You think of all the tricks where a top hat or a bowl hat was used to produce something. Nobody wears hats anymore. Well, they wear different types of hats and occasionally you'll see a trick with a baseball cap but obviously top hats very old-fashioned um, and then I was gonna say milk bottles um, one of the classics of magic is, is, is some of the classics of magic are done with milk bottles well actually we do get still get our milk in milk bottles delivered by a milkman but a lot of people most people don't so what's taken over? Well, of course, there are certain things like credit cards, mobile phones, modern items that 
have taken over from some of these more old-fashioned items uh, and magic is being produced with those i mean i still do flying the flying ring and the ring borrowed ring goes into a key case well a key case is a bit of a an anachronism these days because a lot of people hardly anybody uses a key case i still use it because i think it is still recognizable just about but and, and i think it's the strongest way because it's inside something and it is better to my view than having on an open key ring but again it's an item that's gradually being phased out large gentlemen's wallets that's the wallet that's large not the gentleman full-size gentleman wallets again billfold wallets that's what everybody's carrying so why would anybody these days try to do a trick using a massive great wallet it would look weird taking that out of your pocket because what's that it's huge why would anybody use that so that there are so many things that that we're that we're not doing anymore not not tricks that we can't do anymore or that we've got to adapt to modern things that's not to say that magicians props have to be always logical uh, you think about for years i've been doing an akito box routine i don't give an explanation when i and i still do for lay people you hand them an akito box to examine is it a little box a little brass box have a look at it does it look unusual you know, yeah of course it does what the hell is it is the answer that they should give but actually it's just a magician's prop and there are several things like that sponge balls is another one isn't it it's not a natural item it's just a magical item and we still do magic with them so there are those types of things but ordinary things that people carry around with them i think that's what's changing and of course if we're not careful we can have an act that comprised entirely of magic using objects that nobody carries around anymore can make it look incredibly dated when we go out to do our commercial shows our audiences are made up of usually a disparate group of individuals who've all collected together for one reason or another in order to witness your performance and these people probably all come from different backgrounds different upbringings they have a different views on whether they like or don't like magic they have perhaps got issues about that particular event or that particular night so they're not in a good mood or they could be in a good mood it just depends all sorts of different things and you've got a maelstrom of emotions and and attitudes sitting in front of you and you are supposed to entertain this disparate group of individuals and when you do it a lot you especially i think in close-up where you get to see more closely how spectators are reacting to the magic you start to or at least i do you start to categorize people as certain types of spectator i thought it might be fun just to to talk about this for a few minutes the, the different types that i've identified the first and pro probably the most obvious is the skeptic now this is the person who absolutely does not believe in magic never has and never will and this person will often delight in telling you that well of course i don't believe in any of this you won't fool me i i can work out how all tricks are done this this type of thing. they're quite sometimes quite confrontational and one of the little fun thing i think fun things to do is to try and do something that you know 100% is going to fool them badly. 
Now, they probably still won't admit, oh, yes, oh, yeah, I see what you're doing there, even though they clearly aren't able to see what you're doing there. They're never going to probably go, the, the genuine sceptics, never going to admit that you fooled them. However, you know when you have. You'll know from their expression or what they actually say and how they say it that you fooled them. And there's something rather pleasing about fooling a sceptic. Now, on the other side of the coin, of course, there is the believer. Now, the believer is, is somebody who probably does identify that they know that magic is kind of, it's all a bit fake, all a bit fake. But they want to believe that you are able to create something that is impossible. They like the sensation of being returned to how they perhaps they were when they were a child, where they believed in, it, it believed in magic. And just for a few minutes, some people love that, being returned to that state of, of belief in magic that they lost perhaps when they became an adult. And the believer, unless you're a really bad magician and really don't do stuff well, is going to love what you do because they're invested in the idea of magic. And then you've got the, per the, the apathetic person. This is the person you go up to a table and they look up at you in this sort of tired way and think, what do you want? I'm on my phone. Can't you see I'm, I'm doing my social media? It's way more important than you are. Just go away. The, the, these people couldn't care less what you did. You try to engage with them. You show them something that hopefully they will like. And they sort of just, they don't react. They just sort of look at you with this bland, blank expression. And you sort of wonder whether there's anybody, you want to knock them on the head and say, is there anybody in there by any chance? Anybody sort of trying to get out? Anybody living in that, that frame of yours? Because quite frankly, you've no idea whether they're taking in what you're doing or not because they are so apathetic. And then you get the people who are actually, quite frankly, they're the worriers. They're a little bit worried about what you're going to do. Now, it could be that they have a, and there are people like this who have a slight phobia about magic. They, 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 they are worried that you're going to do something that they won't be able to explain and that this is going to make them feel really uncomfortable and really embarrassed and that you're going to make them look a fool in front of their, their friends and relatives. Um, hopefully you're not going to do that, but that's what they think. And so they get very agitated. And, and I've had people... Uh, before I've even started, I walk up to a group, oh, hello, I introduce myself, I'm Mark, I'm the magician here tonight. And the person will go, oh, no, and turn around and walk away. They, they can't handle it. It's too much of a worry for them. So they're very difficult. Even if they stay, they are very difficult people to entertain. And then you've got the people who turn into fans of you personally. Yeah, they love the magic, but they, they start to invest in you powers that quite frankly let's face it none of us actually have but these people are so amazed by what you do can see no possible explanation other than the fact that you must have special powers you are this superhuman person who can do amazing things and they they sort of look up up at you in this sort of admiring way as if to say wow you're amazing very nice for your ego but let me just point out that it's a, it's a total uh, spurious claim that you can make to be a, the real person who does real magic. You, you, don't forget you can't. Despite what the fan thinks, you really can't. 
And then you've got the analyst. Now, this is the person who understands. He's kind of like a skeptic. But rather than just poo-pooing everything and just pretending, he actually wants to, to work out exactly how you're doing the magic that you're presenting to him. He will burn your hands and refuse to be misdirected by your, you asking questions or, or you're trying to engage with him. No, 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 I'm going to watch your hands. I'm going to catch you out. I, I'm going to work out how this is done. This is another person, a bit, a bit like the sceptic, who I rather enjoy showing them something where there's nothing to see and using a principle they couldn't possibly know because I know it's going to fool them. And mean though it may be to treat people in this way, I do rather enjoy that when I feel that I'm going to do something that they really can't work out. But they're going to do it. That's how they get their pleasure. And, and in some ways, you know, I don't mind that. In, in some ways, they, they are a very difficult spectator. But as I said at the beginning of this, all these people come with, a, they're a disparate group. They all come with different expectations of what you're going to do. And they, they all react to what you do according to the type that they are. And the analyst, he, he just wants to work it out. And that's how he gets his pleasure, if he thinks that, that he might have a chance of seeing how you do it. So those are just some of the character types. And it's funny, in almost in any, in an evening's performance round close-up, I can pretty much guarantee I will see several of each of these types at the various groups or tables that I entertain. My daughter Chrissy lives in Surrey and for all of her life, certainly from early teenage years onwards, she's been passionately interested in the theatre and performance. At one point she even considered doing a degree in stage management. She was so interested in it. And the way this has manifested itself uh, in sort of modern times, if you like, for her, is that she loves to go to musicals and plays in, in London. And being based in Surrey as she is, she's very well posted to catch a train and go and see all the top productions. And one of the things that she and I do together, sort of dad and daughter time, if you like, is that we go to various productions of things that we have a common interest in. And it gives us a chance not only to have a meal and have a proper chat, just the two of us, but also to see some fantastic productions in London. And recently we went to see the Back to the Future musical, which is based on the three films from the late mid to late 80s, early 90s. I've always loved those three films and the whole sort of Marty McFly and all, and all the rest of it is very well done in musical form in this latest production which we saw at the Adelphi Theatre in London. Now the reason I'm mentioning it is because part of, especially at the end, there are one or two moments where there's, there's some sort of magic that takes place. But the best bit is right at the end. A spoiler alert here, I suppose, to a certain extent, if you haven't seen it and you intend to go. But the DeLorean car, the time-travelling car, is on centre stage right at the end of the production. And the Doc and Marty get into the, get into the car. They shut the doors. And then the car starts to levitate off the ground on the centre stage. And it starts to rise up. And it rises up quite, quite, so it's about halfway sort of between the stage and the, and the tabs at the top. And you think, well, that's, that's good. But then it starts to come out over the audience and moves out over the front few rows of the audience. You think, oh, well, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Then the whole car rotates completely 
almost on its axis as it were 360 degrees so that at one point they end up obviously upside down and then it comes all the way around and you're thinking how on earth is this happening it must be attached at the back at which point the whole car turns once it's righted itself it turns itself so that the back is now facing the audience and then it moves back onto the stage and then basically effectively disappears now this is this is not s sort of cgi back projection or anything like this this is a physical thing and and it was a it absolutely brought the house down it, it the whole thing is it's a fantastic production it's really vibrant it's really good but that magical finish when the, with the car for me anyway certainly and i think for a lot of the audience it was jump up on your feet standing ovation type of thing it, it really brought the thing to a fantastic crescendo as a finish and and i wondered who'd done the magic and apparently it's magic circle member chris fisher who um i don't think i've ever met um apparently he's done consulting magic consulting on a number of top productions and and these are some ideas of his and i just wanted to take my hat off to him because it really was impressive and i kind of like things like that because it was um people like paul keeve who's also done of course consulting for lots of of big productions when you go to a thing as again chrissy and i went to see ghost a few years ago some of the magic effects in that are astounding they're really really good and what i like about it is whereas when you go to a magic show you kind of go expecting amazing things to happen that's why you go to a magic show to see magic yeah however when you go to something that is not a magic show like back to the future or ghost and it's the magic suddenly comes in as part of the the plot or part of the the visual thing that to do with that particular play it almost seems more impressive somehow because there's not a magician out there saying i'm now going to make this delorean car disappear levitate and disappear it just happens and there's something about that that i think makes for very very strong impact magic so if, if you haven't seen back to the future I would highly recommend if you like musicals really would recommend it it's a fantastic production apparently it's going to new york next year so american listeners can will be able to pick it up there perhaps but i thoroughly enjoyed it and i think if you went you probably would too you know i've always thought that strolling magicians when it comes to the type of conditions that we are expected to work in have the most just about the most difficult deal of all types of magician because we are not really in control of our performance environment you can't change very much in order to make it any easier for yourself the situation that you find presented to you when you arrive at a venue is usually the one that you have to work in you can't do much to alter it and as a result strolling magicians have to be incredibly adaptable and have to be able to work in well i've worked in everything from sort of very upmarket restaurants hotels people's houses outside are all sorts of different large and small events i've worked on a trains buses a jetty for a boat uh, you know you you can basically be asked to mix and mingle and do your strolling stuff anywhere can't you that's the nature of the beast and of course it's very difficult to sometimes to make a good fist of that when the conditions are very cold windy bright sunlight 
or cramped if it's indoors. It isn't easy and you have to be adaptable. And I think as a result of all of this, strolling magicians almost get a a sixth sense about their environment. I think good ones do. I think you you need to be aware of what's going on around you because I think when you you're at an event and you and you're entertaining a small group of five or six people it's very easy to be totally concentrated on those few people and of course you do need you need eye contact you need to keep the group together you need to interact with them well but I think at the same time, and this is where the skill comes in, you need to be aware of what's going on around you. Are there disadvantageous angles for what you're performing from other people looking across at you from behind you or to the sides, for instance? Are you, because of where you're standing with this latest group, are you actually standing blocking a passageway almost between tables where waiting staff need to get past you you know they're carrying loads of plates or trays of food suddenly you realize if if you're not paying attention people say oh you need to move the person's trying to get past it doesn't look very good if you're not aware that somebody is loads of plates of steaming food is trying to get past you and you haven't even realized and you're just carrying on performing still blocking the way i think a good magician strolling magician will be aware of what's going on around them and will be able to choreograph their movement almost without pausing move in to let the people pass and then move back out again so that the field of view of the people they're entertaining is 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 the at the optimum range again i think there's a there's a lot of other things too such as you entertaining i was doing a show last night and you entertaining in a group of people somebody was there were two ladies coming around with trays on which were small amounts of of food little entree type foods and they were going around and they were and you'd be entertaining a group and they never don't come to that group because you're entertained they don't seem to notice that you're doing anything and they always walk up barge in and say food anyone and would you like one of these and of course you can't compete with food we all know that so people immediately turn around and, and start helping themselves to food and it breaks up everything and you have to be able to deal with this you have to pause you can't fight it you've got to pause wait till they move away so well now we've got the important food stuff done let's let me go back to where i was now as i was saying you've got to be able to carry on without almost without apparently missing a beat even though sometimes it can be come at exactly the wrong moment just when you're coming to a major point in the trick last night when i had one trick that has sort of two two endings there's an ending and there's a kicker ending i did the ending so it looks like it's the end of the trick and just at that moment this woman came in with her tray everybody took food and then i then i did the kicker ending and and um and then i thought afterwards actually i probably shouldn't have done that because i could have loaded an elephant in the time while they were getting the extra food so the kicker didn't have the impact that it should have had if it had followed on immediately from the previous ending of the trick if you like so i think as strolling magicians we do have a lot to cope with and i think the better that we deal with it the better that we deal with for instance numbers in the group changing two people suddenly noticing somebody that they want to go and say hello to and just turn around and walking off not letting these things phase you extra people joining a group but being able to absorb all these things that are going on around you while you perform and yet still presenting your magic in the best possible way 
Now, December, of course, is the festive season when those of us who do shows possibly do more than they might normally do. And, of course, the last two years, so December 20 and December 21, have been disrupted to a greater or lesser extent by COVID. And the number of events have varied enormously. Things that we used to do perhaps every year didn't happen for either both or one of those years. So maybe we've, we've, as magicians, we've got out of the habit of doing lots of shows in a short period of time. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, there are a number of things which, in any other month, are not an issue. If, let's say you do, just for argument's sake, four shows in a month. And in Christmas time, you might be doing three or four times that number. Then the toll on you as an individual doing all those shows in a short period of time, because normally those shows are usually in the second and third weeks of the month, aren't they? Possibly the first week too, but they're crammed into a fairly short sp space. Then there is, there's a price to be paid. For me, I find it's the strain on my voice, doing lots of close-up, going around tables in noisy environments. If you just do this occasionally, then it's fine, your voice recovers. But if you do night after night or several nights in a row, then I find it makes it, I get sore throats and my voice starts to, to get a bit, a bit thin almost because of the strain that's put on it. And you have to kind of, I have to kind of manage this and try not to strain my voice when I'm presenting in, in environments where there's the background music is not particularly background. So as well as things like that, you also, it's a time of year when lots of people have got flu or colds. And there's a danger, of course, that we can pick that up. Now, you can pick them up because, again, with strolling magicians, you're very close to your audience. You may, they may transmit germs to you. But, but, but also, if you accept a drink at, at a venue, whether it's in a glass or a cup, you can pick stuff off that. You use the public toilets more often than you might normally do. You can pick something up from that and end up with a stomach upset. There are all sorts of sort of biohazards, if you like, which we have to cope with, don't we? And it's no good saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter because, uh, you know, if I'm not feeling too good, I won't go out and do the show. Well, the show must go on. And, and so we tend to try to go and fulfill the bookings that we've got, irrespective of what's, what's been happening. To us personally and then the other things that that uh, having a lot of shows in quick succession can cause too car problems suddenly you're driving around more than you would normally problems with your props uh, whereas using a prop two or three times a month suddenly you use it loads will it break does it malfunction in some way um, because of the extra workload that it's having to take on in a short period of time. Sometimes that's that's true. And if you are someone, let's say like, I don't know, you do balloons. Have you got enough balloons in stock? Or are you suddenly going to run out halfway through your Christmas run? And I think all these things, we need to kind of get used again. But if we have not been doing them so much over the last two Christmas periods, we need to, to look at them and think, yeah, actually, I must think about this. Are there any props that are getting a bit ropey that I may need to replace? Are there any consumables that I better order now rather than trying to order them in the middle of December when all the post is all over the place? So I think there's the, all these things that come together 
in December, we've got out of the habit of thinking about them and maybe it's time to think about them again and to try and make sure that we have the most successful Christmas season that we possibly can. So there we are. That's another podcast finished. I hope you've enjoyed everything I've chatted about and I hope you have a very uh, enjoyable Christmas and New Year. Oh, and just for those of you who wondered, the piece I did on Listenburg, yes, I do know Listenburg is a fake country. I hope you do too now. And that I did the piece just because I came across it on Twitter that this guy had set up this meme about a fake country near Spain called Listenburg and it went viral. And people have added all sorts of things. They've even got a national anthem, a passport, and they've invented this whole series of things. And I thought it would be funny to also add the magic circle of Listenburg. So that's what that was all about. I'm telling you now because I didn't want people to think that I'd really been invited to lecture in a country that didn't exist. <laughs>